I'd like to encourage you now to turn your Bibles to the book of Titus, to the book of Titus. We've been looking in the book of Titus, and we'll be reading from chapter 2, chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. Paul has written this book to Titus and instructions by which he is to, 2.15, speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority so that he might set in order the things for the church. And he instructs Titus in the very beginning to set and appoint qualified elders within the church in Titus chapter 1, and then to deal with people who are rebellious, who are deceivers. We looked at that last week, who have been uh, fostering uh, or promoting false teaching. And now he turns to the individuals within the church and addresses various categories of demographic individuals in the church, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and lastly, those who are bond slaves, as we look at it as those who are employed. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The text reads, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach so that the opponent will, not, will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, what a joy it is to be in the hearing of your word, to be able to gather in freedom and worship you. May we take this privilege, not lightly, knowing that, Father, your word endures, it gives life, and helps us, Father, to be a testimony and a light. Thank you, Father, again. Open the eyes of our heart that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Syndicated New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman, he is a keen observer of world trends, and he wrote an article entitled, The Whole World is Watching. And it was about the idea that technology has made everyone a potential paparazzo. He explains that anyone we encounter could have a cell phone with a camera that could videotape 
any of our actions. If we're rude, if we misbehave, we could be recorded and end up on some offended person's blog or YouTube anytime. He says, we're all public figures now, he writes. For support, he cites a new book, How, by Dove Seidman. Its thesis, quote, In this world of new and potentially revealing technology, how we live our lives and conduct our business has become far more significant than what we do. We do not live in glass houses or houses that have walls. We live on glass microscope slides, visible and exposed to all, unquote, right, Seidman? What a concept. What a concept, isn't it? How we live our lives, how we conduct our business has become far more significant than what we do. It's just true, isn't it? So much of our news footage, you just turn on the news in the evening and you'll watch various disasters or political faux pas or conflict situations are often recorded, uploaded by somebody who has a smartphone and simply hits the camera app there, recording all for everyone to see. So imagine... Imagine that someone has come and is recording you, recording you, and automatically it uploads to the cloud, automatically uploads to YouTube for the entire world to see. What would they say about your life? What would they say about your life? And that is the reason why Paul tells Titus here to give specific instructions to various people of different life stages within the church, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and lastly, for slaves and masters. Why? Verse 5, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Verse 8, so that the opponent will, not, will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Verse 10, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. All of these things that he gives that are listed here are for the sake of the testimony that you have in living a godly life, the testimony for Christ Jesus, the testimony of what you believe. So he instructs Titus, and he begins in verse 1. He gives him this command, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. What is in accord with sound doctrine? That word sound means whole or healthy. It's from the word which we get the word hygiene, because the focus, you see, is not on doctrine itself, but on the practical implications of, of doctrine, The practical application is where he turns to now in addressing these various demographics. The practical application, the outworking of what we believe. And that that is so very true. When Paul writes, he writes and tells us what we believe should affect how we live. Orthodoxy should affect orthopraxy. And he begins, in many of his letters, he begins like that. In the book of Romans, he begins with 11 chapters, 11 out of 16 chapters, all on theology and doctrine. And the first command comes in Romans chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, are practical outworkings of what we believe. Same with Ephesians. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are all about who we are in Christ, the riches we have in Christ, who we are, doctrine and theology. And then 4 through 6 are the practical outworkings of that. 
Same with the book of Philippians. When we've been looking at that, Paul begins with great doctrine and theology. And it's important and very true that we need to know what God says and why he says what he says many times before we can live a life that is godly and consistent with the knowledge of God. Head knowledge comes before heart knowledge. Both are important. It's not guaranteed that one will live a godly life simply because they know a lot of things, but it's the beginning point. And here, Paul says to him, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, which are consistent, which are consistent with sound doctrine. And he begins by addressing various demographics. And the first demographic he addresses is that of older men. Verse 2, older men. Now, in American culture, some may think of old age as related to various things, loss of mobility, loss of memory, aches and pains, eyesight, loss of whatever it might be, the high cost of health care, etc. Older men, old age in many cultures around the world is not necessarily associated in that way as it is in Western culture here. Many times around the world, old age is related to wisdom or maturity, or experience, or respect, or stability. It's seen as something that is good, something where someone has a strength of character and patience. Job 12.12 says, Wisdom is with aged men, with long life is understanding. So growing old is not a bad thing. The spectra, the scriptures teach that the older to be treated with special respect, how you might approach them or correct them. Our parents who are older deserve that respect from their children. In an ancient Greek culture, the word was sometimes used, this older men was sometimes used for individuals, men as young as 50. Those of you who are 50, well, you might be in the Greek culture considered an old man. Paul used the term himself when he was in his 60s, Philemon 9. There's not a set age, though. To be clear, there's not a set age for those who are older because we know in some cultures, in some parts of the world, the, the ex- life expectancy of people can vary. But being old is not necessarily a bad thing as our culture might contend. Being old in age leads one to have a greater understanding of how life is. It doesn't necessarily mean that one is godly, however. One may be old, but very worldly or very secular in one's thinking. One may be old, but be stuck in their ways, which are perhaps wrong. So Paul gives Titus instructions here by which he is to instruct those who are older. He is to teach these things. And he is to teach these things as he is ministering in Crete to these individuals. In verse 2, chapter 2, verse 15, it says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so he gives them characteristics of what an older individual is to be. An older man, first of all, he tells him that they are to be temperate. That they are to be temperate. The root idea is to be free from intoxication, but it's more metaphorical here in one who is moderate in all their ways. They're moderate in all their ways. They're level-headed. They're clear-thinking. They avoid extremes. They avoid extravagances. They don't indulge in any particular area of life. remember seeing on the news a man who had a car collection. He had a car collection, and 
That's what he did. He collected and he stored vintage cars. And he poured his life into polishing cars, cleaning cars, fixing up cold cars. He had so many. I think he was in this area, in fact. In fact, he had so many. He had at least three locations, warehouses full of cars. Then he died. He collected so many. That's why he was in the news. I think all of these cars were going to go into a museum. Nothing's wrong with hobbies But his pursuit of his life was to restore old cars, and that's what he spent his life and poured his life into. Those who are temperate are moderate or balanced in their life, never to be over-extravagant in any one area. They're also to be worthy of respect, as the NIV would say it, or dignified, and NASB would say Honorable, upright, someone you look up to, somebody who's older. They're not caught in the frivolous. They're not caught in the trite or the superficial. It doesn't mean that they're always serious or they never laugh or they're stone-faced cold. But they are people who know when it is right to be serious and when to have appropriate, inappropriate behavior. They're worthy of respect. They're dignified. And when it comes to the right things, you, if you had a life-threatening serious health issue and you needed immediate surgery, you wouldn't want to go to a surgeon who was careless, who was flippantly joking around. You would want somebody who is serious, lest they remove the wrong organ or cut off the wrong limb or leave something behind after they sew you up. In fact, I was reading recently, there was a study done in the New England Journal of Medicine, about 1,500 patients get objects left behind inside of them every year in the United States after they're sewn up. And that's a very small percentage considering that there are over 28 million surgeries connect, conducted in the U.S. But, and I'm sure it's not out of intentionality, but you want those who are going to be leading and those who are models to be, those who are older to be dignified and serious about life. They're to be self-controlled or sensible to be of sound mind, sensible. That particular word is found not only in those who are older, but younger women, it says, they're to be sensible. Younger men, they're to be sensible. And it means to be discretionary, to have good judgment, to have good discernment. They're not to be those who are reactionary or indulging in their physical passions or chasing around worldly attractions. They're to be people who have a sensible common sense to them, One of the things that comes with age as men grow older is that there is much practical wisdom, having learned perhaps the hard way, many lessons in life, and we can learn from those who are older. We can learn the lessons that they have made, not to make the same mistakes, and they are to be sensible in their behavior because they have life wisdom. They've seen and watched things come, and people do particular things that are unwise, and they are to apply and live sensibly And then Paul lists three other things in which he tells older men they're to be sound. Sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance here in the text. They're to be sound in faith, meaning that they're grounded in their faith. They're not to be doubting and wavering. They're to be grounded, solid in their faith. They're to be sound in love. They exemplify love. They have love for others, love for their family, and a growing deep love for God and His Word. They're to be sound in perseverance. Sound and perseverance, they know what it is to persevere in the end. They know that difficult times are 
come and go along with the seasons of life. They have life history by which they can look back and see perhaps the hand of God and see that God is faithful and persevere. They don't quit or give up or toss in the towel. That is not to be a part of an older man's mentality. And as older men, there may be the temptation to feel sometimes not as useful or not as helpful or that God might not be able to use them as greatly. But God uses older individuals in powerful ways. Moses was 80 years old when God called him to lead Israel out of Egypt. Caleb was 85 when he was called to take the strongholds away from the giants in Joshua 14. And you say, well, that's way back then. They lived a lot longer back then. Well, John Wesley, at the age of 83, he was a very well-known pastor and theologian who wrote hymns. He continued to minister even in his old age. He confessed that he had a tendency in his older age at 83 to sleep in, saying that he slept in until 5.30 a.m., And he regretted that he was not able to read and write for more than 15 hours a day. God can powerfully use older men as role models, as role models to those who are younger, of wisdom, of applying God's word, of the devotion, of being steadfast, especially on the mission field as they garner tremendous respect, tremendous respect in many other cultures those who are older men. Then he addresses those who are older women. Verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Now like the men, the Bible doesn't specify at what age older women refers to. Unlike Western culture, as I mentioned before, older women have greater respect in biblical times, as well as in many cultures around the world. Titus was to remind them, first of all, to be reverent in their behavior. As one lexicon puts it, in a number of languages, the concept of living a godly life, living a godly life or reverent in your behavior, may be best expressed to live as God would have one to live, to live as one, like one who should believe in God, or to always do what God requires. To live a reverent life is to live in a manner that is pleasing to God, that there is a fear and a reverence for God, that one desires to please God above all else. That's the understanding. Secondly, they're not to be malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine. Not one who gossips, not one who slanders or puts down others in their speech. They're not to be known as one who is the go-to person if you want to know what's going on with everyone else. They're not to be enslaved to much wine, meaning that they're not enslaved, and they're not addicted. It doesn't mean that it's not much wine. They can, it's, it's basically an idea of being drunk. Sometimes an elderly individual, whether it's men or women, find that there's pain in life maybe because of loneliness, maybe because of frustration, maybe because of anxiety or regrets of the past. And so sometimes they have turned to alcohol as something to dull the pain. They're not to do so. Instead, older women, it says, are to teach what is good, to teach what is good. That is what Titus is to encourage them. They're not to be withdrawn, but to be teachers, to be teachers, 
Of whom? Of younger women. Verse 4. So that they may encourage the young women, it says, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Older women have the privilege of teaching, of passing on what God has taught them. First of all, to love their families, or love their husbands, love their children. Now, some might wonder, how can you command someone to love someone else? What if they are difficult? What if they're an abuser? What if they're an adulterer? What if the child is out of control, or whatever it may be? But they're to love their families. That's what they're to tell, teach young women to do. And this type of love that is here is not a romantic type of love, but a love that is intentional, a love that is intentional regardless of whether or not the other individual deserves it. Because our culture primarily defines love, you see, as a feeling, as a feeling. People fall in love, they fall out of love, and when the feeling is gone, they bemoan the fact that they do not love their spouse anymore and they want out of a marriage. That is not biblical love nor the type of love that is mentioned here. You know, in Western marriages, it is love comes before commitment, but in many parts of the world where there are arranged marriages, commitment comes before love, and one learns to love the spouse that they are arranged to marry. Isn't that interesting? And by the way, in arranged marriage cultures, the divorce rate is much lower, because love is about commitment. Love is learned. Love is commanded of husbands towards wives, of wives towards husbands, of young women here towards their husband and towards their children. It is a self-giving, sacrificial love, the type of love that God has. God loved us when we were yet sinners, and he sent his son to die for us who were undeserving Wives are to love their husbands, they're to love their children, these young women. Secondly, they're to be sensible. And sensible, just as we looked at for older men, means self-controlled. It doesn't mean intelligent. Sometimes students may think, well, it means intelligent. A person can be very smart and intelligent and yet lack common sense. They can lack common sense. Sometimes it's because they fail to count the cost. They live for the here and now. Perhaps it is because they fail to plan for the future. They don't want to wait. They're driven by fear or feelings. And they lack common sense. They lack common sense. And sometimes common sense or sensibilities or self-control goes out the window. When we're deceived, we, we look at something. Like the Powerball comes up every so often in the news and people will put down tons of cash. I was looking at the statistics. Your chances of winning are 1 in 175 million. It's not even by chance. It's by the sovereign hand of God. It's so small. If you take 175 million $1 bills, I read, you could circle from Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine to Oregon, or to Orlando, Florida, all the way to L.A., laying them one after the other, all the way back up to Portland, twice. <laughs> so if you ride your bike around the country and you decide, I'm going to pick up any old bill along that cross-country track all around the United States, you pick it up, you might, might 
might pick up the one that is the winning ticket. But you'd have to pick it up twice. And yet people will throw out sensibility when it comes to things because they want something. Thirdly, they're to be pure. This word is hognos. It refers to sexual purity, but in context, when he's speaking to younger married women, he is speaking of they ought to be pure and faithful to their husbands. And it's vice versa. It goes both ways. Our world, though, glamorizes adultery. Our world glamorizes adultery. Both husbands and wives are called to be faithful. You know, a couple months ago, there was a website that promoted adulterous relationships, and they were hacked. And you know how many, how many registered users there were? There were some 30 to 40 million users, registered users on this particular website that promoted adulterous relationships. That's the world we live in. That is the world we live in that promotes and accepts marital infidelity. One who is pure, though, is to be faithful to one's husband. And the fourth thing that older women are to encourage the younger women is, is, is in the area of workers at home. Addressing younger married women, the text implies that their primary responsibility is the home. That is not to say that it is somehow sinful to work outside of the home, as we see in Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman who conducts business in addition to taking care of her household. But contrary to some of the pressure our culture puts on women, to have it all by having a career, having a family, having an independent life. There's nothing at all wrong with being a full-time housewife, full-time mother. In fact, she's carrying on the primary responsibility that God has given to her, attending to her family, attending to her children, attending to her home. We find that even early on in Genesis chapter 3, it was those primary areas that God brought the curse upon When sin entered into the world, what area did God curse Adam in? It was in the area in which he worked the ground. It would no longer produce food so easily. He would work by the the sweat of his brow. And for Eve, the curse brought pain in childbirth. The curse brought conflict and desire over her husband. These were the areas of primary responsibilities that were affected by sin. But in our fallen world, there are many unique situations Unique situations where single mothers or disabled husbands or illnesses or whatever, she may need to work, but God has granted her the privilege of having that primary responsibility of caring for the home. Those who are older women are to encourage the younger women in that regard, not to neglect their home, not to neglect their family. Fifthly, they are to be kind. They are not to be cruel or contentious. They are to be kind, regardless of whether or not the other person deserves it. Jesus said in Luke 6.35, he said, Love your enemies and do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. And then he says, For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. God himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. It is godly to be kind to those who perhaps are undeserving. Do you have a life that is characterized by that, or do you only show kindness to people who are kind to you? Sixthly, being subject to their own husbands. Being subject to their own husbands. 
Some may look at that and say, well, what about husbands who don't know the Lord? What about husbands who are disobedient to God? What about husbands who don't follow the Word of God? 1 Peter, 1 Peter, if you turn your Bibles just a couple of books over, addresses that very issue. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Speaking to wives, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. That same instruction is repeated in Ephesians 5 as well, Ephesians 5.22. And just as in Ephesians 5.22, it makes an analogy that just as the church is subject to Christ, so too wives should be subject to their husbands. And why is this attitude, why is this attitude instructed of them? Verse 5 in Titus chapter 2, verse 5. The basis of this is so that the word of God will not be dishonored, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Honoring God and following God's word brings him glory. And just to underscore once again, this is not something that Paul tells Titus that he was himself to teach. He was to teach the older women, and it was the older women who were to teach the younger women these things. The older women in the church have no excuse to say, well, oh, they don't have our values. Oh, I'm just old-fashioned, or oh, I don't want to tell others what to do, or I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, or whatever it may be. No, the Word says that it is the older women who are to behave in a certain way so that they may teach the younger women how they ought to conduct themselves. Then he turns to the fourth demographic, and that fourth demographic is young men, young men. And this term was used to refer to anyone who would be of marriageable age, up to 50 or 60, He says to them, be sensible, be sensible. Once again, that word comes up to be of good judgment, to be level-headed. And sometimes sensibility goes out the window. It goes out the window. Sometimes when someone is caught in an addictive behavior, they're caught in alcoholism or gambling or they're caught with internet addiction or whatever, sensibility, they lose track of reality, of what is sensible. Maybe sometimes for those who are in love, those who are in love, all things are blind to them, blind to the truth. Maybe it's those even who are worshiping other gods. In Isaiah chapter 44, God speaks through Isaiah about the foolishness of a person who cuts down a cedar tree. With half of it, he says, he makes a fire to make bread. With the other half of the tree, he fashions an idol, and then he bows down to it. Sensibility goes out the window when people are blind. But to be of good judgment... That is what young men are to be. To be examples in verse 7 of good deeds. That word example literally means to make a mark, to make an impression. If you had a hammer and you hammered something and you missed the nail, it would make a mark in your wall. Make a mark, 
That's what it means to make a pattern and be an example of good deeds. And Titus was to encourage the young men to be good examples of good deeds. Hypocrisy invalidates a message. And one of the biggest objections Christians have or non-Christians have is the charge of hypocrisy. People who go to church on Sundays, but the rest of the week, they can't see how they would ever live in a way that is consistent with what they profess. And Paul tells the Corinthian believers, be imitators of me. Thirdly, in your teaching, show integrity, or it says purity of doctrine, depending on what version you say. It can mean purity of life according to the right doctrine, but here it's perhaps best understood as in teaching, uncorruptness. Uncorruptness in what we are communicating to others when it comes to the truth of God's Word. When it comes to communicating, we looked at that subject last week when we talked about those who would come into the church and those particularly Judaizers who promoted things from their past that they had not let go of. False ideas that they had not relinquished to submit themselves to the Word of God and they were propagating these things. But in our teaching, we are to show integrity. Fourthly, they are to be serious or dignified, just as the old men, older men were to be. A life that is serious. And Titus was to set his heart with a serious approach to applying these things, to applying himself to the Word of God. doesn't mean that a life is devoid of fun or devoid of laughter or whatever it may be, but there is to be a seriousness, not a flippancy, to when it comes especially to the things of God, when it comes to life itself, and to be sound in speech, to be sound in speech, which means healthy, healthy. Ephesians 5, it reminds me of 5 verse 4. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. No foolish talk, no obscenity, nor coarse joking. Titus was to be one who knew how to speak, and he was encouraging young men to be people who speak what is edifying and good. It is not hip or in to be one who talks like everyone else done regardless. Some have taken the, the idea that, boy, I've got to relate to the culture, so I've got to talk about the things that they talk like. They talk and say these things that are off color or use language that is inappropriate. Why does Paul say all of these things, verse 8, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us? And literally the word to ashamed means to blush. We're to live our lives so that there's nothing, if somebody were to view our life, that they would blush. To accuse us of some speech or some teaching or some attitude, we're to be above reproach in all that we do and we conduct our lives. We're not to be people, and I've heard people say this, well, I don't care what anybody else says about me. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. But Paul here clearly says, look, you don't want them to have anything bad to say about us. There are many things that Christians can do or not do, but it is all about our testimony. In their book, Unchristian, the author David Kinnaman highlights a number of statistics, but one in particular that was done by an extensive study by the Barner Research Group. For those who were born between 1965 and 2002, one of the statistics showed about how those outside of the church view those within. Of the non-Christians surveyed, 84% of them said that they knew at least one very committed Christian. But out of all of those, only 15% thought that the lifestyles 
of those Christ followers were significantly different from the norm. The question is, what difference does Christ make in your life? What kind of testimony do you have? And he also encourages those who are bond slaves. Bond slaves. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Now, in the Roman Empire, there were many, many slaves. In fact, without them, I'm not sure what they would have done because all of these slaves that were there, sometimes they were captured from other, other nations. Much of the labor was done by slaves. Some slaves were mistreated. Some slaves were beaten. Some slaves were, were very mistreated, while others, they were treated very well. Other slaves were, some of them were very educated, sometimes more educated than the people in the household, and sometimes they were given great responsibilities. There were some slaves who were even such that they were given and allowed to marry, allowed to own land, and have their own families. So Paul in the scriptures don't, doesn't give a verdict on slavery itself, but what he does do is he tells them how they ought to behave, how they ought to behave, that they were to be subject to their own masters and obedient. And the word subject is a military term. It is a term in which it describes the relationship of a soldier to his superior officer. Soldiers were to submit to their superior officer. They were to do what pleased the officer. They were to immediately obey. They were not to argue or bicker with them. Can you imagine the chaos that would ensue in our own military if everyone questioned their superior officer? Slaves were not to do so. And this is the way it is to be those that God has placed above us. And in relation to this, perhaps it would be that case of an employee-employer. To be a godly individual, to submit to your boss, to submit to your manager, and not to argue with them. If you don't like what they say, we aren't to push back, as some would say, give our boss an attitude. There's not to be any slandering of them behind their back. There's not to be bemoaning of their a manager or supervisor, they are to work instead to please them. And this command, you realize, it was given to slaves. They didn't have the choice to switch jobs like we have today. If you don't like your job, you don't like your boss or whatever, you can quit. You can look for other employment. But while you're there, your attitude is to be that of pleasing them, of submitting to them, to be well-pleasing and not arguing with them. They also weren't to pilfer. They also weren't to pilfer. Pilfer means to steal something of relatively small value. You know, some people will brush it off and say it's inconsequential because it's so worth so little. You know, taking things, pens and pads and paper clips or whatever it may be, oh, it's inconsequential. But Paul here uses the word pilfer. Pilfer, specifically referring to something of a small value. It doesn't have to be a large value in order to take something away. It doesn't have to be something like that. It could even, it could even be something large or something small. We're not to steal from our employer. And it may not be stealing something physical as well. It could be maybe misrepresenting company funds, maybe using company assets without permission, taking unauthorized trips, Christians, on the other hand, you see, aren't to be involved in any of that. They are to be of the utmost integrity in the workplace, to be dependable, to be trustworthy, to be a model employee, to be someone that others would look up to. Who? Why? 
so that they will adorn the doctrine of God and behave as they ought to in a testimony that is representative of a child of God. You know, we're in the political season now. When you turn on the news, every time you see in the news, we have news about politics, the candidates who are running for president. And a part of American politics is that they have political enemies, and not only in America, but in other parts of the world. And in some camps, they, I'm sure, have people whose job it is to dig up dirt on their opponent to make them look bad. What if you were running for office? Somebody were to look at your life, what would they dig up on you? What would they find that you wouldn't want publicized, that others would criticize? What if somebody were to attach to you a body cam or GoPro camera and have you walk around and everywhere you went, everything you said, every action that you take, every attitude that you had, every customer that you interacted with, this camera would upload onto the internet for all to see. What would they say? What would they say? Would they say that the word of God is dishonored or would they give glory to God because this person is a model citizen? Would they reject God because of you or would they think more about God and what God has to offer because of you? In all cases, whether one is young or old, whether one is a master or slave, whether one is a man or woman, our conduct is not to bring shame, but to bring glory to God that will cause others to speak well of God, to speak highly of you, or to be a means of bringing people to Christ. Your testimony, your testimony is key. And how we conduct ourselves as people within God's church that the world might know that there is a Savior who reaches out to them. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, and Lord, we give you thanks for these practical instructions. And we pray, God, that you would help us to live in a manner worthy of the calling which we have received, to live consistently, Father, with your word, that we might shine like bright stars in a dark night, that we might be beacons that others would look to as a testimony for you. In Jesus' name, amen.